Good morning. It's great to be together. I am so glad to be part of this family, even though I'm retired. They still let me come, and it's wonderful to pinch hit as a retired pastor. For Pastor Jack, and I'm so great grateful that you're here and you're back. And I have had shingles when I was young, so nobody else knows that, but now you do. Yeah, it was no fun. So, and I didn't have it on my head or in my eye, so boy, we've been praying for you. So glad God's bringing you back. Jack is back. So I'm grateful for another opportunity to, to give you another installment on the life of Joseph, which is, who is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And if you were here six weeks ago, and I don't expect that anybody would remember, but I gave a sermon, part one, on Joseph's early years, and the tests, the tough tests of a good God. Remember those tests? Hard service, unjust imprisonment, personal rejection, sexual enticement. How did he pass, face and pass those tests? And he did it by embracing the presence of God, drawing on the power of God, and, and just humbling himself under the plan of God, which he didn't even know what it was. So a lot of us can identify with Joseph because when we go through tough things, we wonder the why. Why is, am I going through this? I don't see any benefit or purpose in the hard things I'm going through right now. And sometimes it feels like God's putting us on hold. And nobody likes to be put on hold. Can you, can you hold for just a minute? Yes, I can hold for just a minute. But if a minute turns into 10, I'm going to like hang up. Or 15 minutes, you know. And if somebody's put on hold for an hour, nobody's going to wait for an hour, are they? What if it's days? Or what if it's years? Joseph is on hold for years, and it gets very difficult. But he finally gets his Cinderella moment when God exalts him to the palace from the prison in one single day. And we get to look at that day today. I'm calling my sermon, Exalted in God's Time, from Genesis chapters 40 to 41. Now, Joseph's story is in the last 14 chapters of this book. You know, the Bible sometimes mentions a person's name just one time, maybe two times, three times, maybe a few verses here. And if somebody's life story is told in 14 chapters of the book of God, that means pay attention. There's something important going on from in his life that God is doing that we, you and I, need to learn from. So that's what we're here for today. Pastor Jack read for us, 1 Peter 5, 6, when Peter, the apostle, was writing to Christians unjustly suffering for their faith and just waiting on God. This is what he tells them to do, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, I have those words bolded, at the proper time, and who decides what the proper time is? The one who is doing the humbling. He may exalt you. So, it works both ways. And he has the power to humble us if we will cooperate, and he has the power to exalt us. And today is how did God humble Joseph, and then how did he get exalted? Waiting on God humbly in a humble posture is so, so hard. But it's a key part of our journeys, our stories. 
It's a lesson God wants us to learn. And I think our time together, my hope is that we'll be encouraged in the waiting today. Back in the early 90s, when my wife Bobby and I were missionaries in Japan, we were church planting in Tokyo, and we took some friends from North America who had come to help us put up a church building. We took them on a day trip to drive up to the incredibly beautiful Mount Fuji, 12,382 feet from sea level. Well, the day we chose to take that trip was unfortunately cloudy and rainy, but we went anyway. It was, we had limited days, and I thought, well, maybe it'll clear up. It might clear up. So we took off. We spent over an hour navigating steep hair, hairpin turns in the fog and the rain. No let up in sight. And obviously, we couldn't see anything of the mountain. We could hardly see anything around us. But as we persevered and as we climbed, I noticed I began to notice that the clouds are getting a little thinner. It's starting to get a little lighter. So we kept pushing on. And pretty soon, it wasn't much longer after that, that we suddenly broke through the clouds at 8,000 feet and burst into the sunshine. And there before us was that majestic snow-capped peak of Mount Fuji with brilliant blue sky behind. And the clouds that we had just come through were now below us like a sea, an ocean of white below us. We got out of our van just so excited and so thanking God for this majesty of his creation. Beautiful handiwork. But, but I thought about that experience and I thought, There's, there is a, a lesson in this. Sometimes it feels like we are in the fog of adversity. We're going around hairpin turns and we really can't see and it feels like nothing is ever going to let up. Why is God permitting us to live in such darkness, in such pain? It's clouding our lives. We've lost our comfort. We've lost our freedom. We're in the prison of our circumstances is the way it feels. But this is the lesson. God is present with us in our prison. It's only one executive order from the palace. God knows when and how to lift us. And today we see what he does for Joseph. I want to see how God worked through Joseph's experience to get him ready for the palace. And then I want to see the incredible way that God moved to exalt and elevate Joseph over the entire land of Egypt. So first of all, let's notice what happened to Joseph in prison. I see you don't have an outline, so if, if you want to take notes, the first thing that happened is Joseph prospered. He prospered in prison. Genesis 39, 21 to 23 tells us that in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. That man ends up putting the whole prison operation under Joseph, who's a prisoner as well. So God is with Joseph in prison. God is in prison with Joseph. God is in jail with Joseph. He is there. He's entering into his adversity. He is there with him as he does with us. You may not believe this, but I, it's true. Jesus is present with us in our pain if we are his. He's present with us in our suffering. He's present with us in our testing. And many of us are going through serious and difficult tests. The presence of God is the key to our prosperity, not our circumstances. If I only could get out of jail, 
I'd be happy. No. God delivers his life and his presence, his peace and blessing right in the middle of our adversity. That's why in Acts chapter 16, remember missionaries, the Apostle Paul and Silas, were beaten and bloody. They were thrown into the dungeon in the city of Philippi. And in, with feet in stocks and bruised and battered, they're singing praises to God. How could John Bunyan write Pilgrim's Progress in a dark prison in Bedford, England? They, Paul, the Apostle Paul, John Bunyan, they experience the same thing. God is present in the middle of my prison. His presence is the secret to my prosperity no matter how tough my circumstances are. Joseph not only prospered in prison, secondly, he served others in prison. In this special jail for the king's prisoners, Joseph's job was to minister to the other prisoners' needs, to take care of their food, their accommodations, make sure they stayed healthy and generally had good morale. Like a caring physician, Joseph made rounds, checking on his charges. One day, Genesis 41-4 describes it. Two of Pharaoh's top staff members, his chief cupbearer and his chief baker, were thrown into the prison for an unnamed offense. Now, these are trusted officials of the king. They're responsible for managing his food service which means they oversee his vineyards, his fields, his herds, creating and serving pleasing menus for the royal palate. This is important stuff. And since they have access to the king, it's very important that they're not involved in any kind of intrigue or plots. We don't know how they lost the favor of Pharaoh. Maybe too many jalapenos in the salsa, I don't know. Whatever their failings, Pharaoh is furious and throws them into prison, into the custody of Joseph. And he notices one morning that they're visibly upset and sad. So this is teaching us something about servanthood. A servant is somebody who pays attention to how people around him are doing. Joseph cared that these men were hurting. He didn't go around pouting about his own unjust imprisonment. You guys want to hear how bad I got it? Boy, I was thrown in here, you know. No. He poured himself into ministering to those around him. Genesis 40, verse 6 says, When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked in verse 7, Why are your faces downcast today? He's looking at their faces, and he can tell. Did you know your face and our body? Okay, are you having a good day if this is how you're walking around? Of course not. Our bodies tell how we're feeling inside, and so do our faces. A servant notices how, you know, parents do this instinctively, but do you see how people are doing around you? Oh, that person's having a hard day. You can sense it. You can tell. And And a servant notices If we're living in self-pity, our powers of observation are greatly diminished, and we don't notice the struggles of those around us. But Joseph is at peace with God, and he notices small things that matter, and he expressed concern. I love that about him. So why were Pharaoh's servants upset? Well, we read in the text that they both had troubling dreams the same night, 
And something told them that these dreams were really important, but neither of them could figure out what they meant. And so Joseph immediately speaks up. In verse 8, he says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. And so he offers thirdly to interpret their dreams. Okay, if that was you, would you do that? God knows your dream. Tell it to me. I'll hear from him, and we'll figure it out. He'll tell me. What does this say about Joseph? It says his heart is so fully alive to God that if he senses God stirring in someone else, even though he may not know what's going on, he'll ask God, and God will tell him, and he'll tell them. Joseph is so convinced that God's able to reveal the meaning of these men's dreams that he offers to help them. Now, you know, dreams have been used by God in the past and sometimes maybe even now to, to speak to people. It's not the only way he speaks, maybe. And not all dreams are from him, but some are. And these were. Joseph could have been really cynical. He could have said, well, you guys had weird dreams? Ha, so did I, long time ago, but hey, nothing ever happened to those. Maybe you just ate something, you know, that didn't agree with you. No, Joseph is so alert to what God is doing in the lives of those around him. And he could see. He offers to connect them and their distress to the one who can help explain what's going on. He says in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. What, what that means is, I don't know what your dreams mean, but the living God who knows all things does. And I believe he'll tell me what your dreams mean, so tell them to me. This is so encouraging, because I don't have to know the answer to what problem you're facing or someone else is around me facing. I don't have to have the solutions that, for the problems that people bring. We don't know how to help someone. It's okay because someone knows. God knows how to help them. So our job is to connect people to the life and power and wisdom of God, the living God. We offer what he can do, not what we can do. We offer what he knows, not what we know. So connected to Jesus, then we're a channel of his grace, wisdom, and mercy to the people who are lost and confused around us. So, responding to Joseph's kind and bold offer to interpret their dreams, the chief cupbearer steps forward and he describes what he dreamed that night. Verses 9 and 10. In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and then I placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. This is like time-lapse photography. And uh, what does this mean? Joseph doesn't bat an eyelid. I think he shot up a prayer to the Lord. But after hearing the dream, immediately he received the meaning of the dream from the Lord. This is, how does he do that? He has a clear connection to God. He has a five-bar connection using cell phone lingo. This is intimacy with God. Good reception comes from submitting to and not resisting God's tests. So if I'm fighting God, I don't have good reception. If I'm humbling myself under his hand, I get good reception. 
and I can be used by him even when I'm suffering. So Joseph explains the meaning of the dream without wavering. He says, three days from now, you're going to be restored back to your old job with Pharaoh. Congratulations, man. And then Joseph adds something that is so precious. It gives us a window into his heart. He makes a request. He says, when you, when you get to the palace, would you do me a favor and mention me to Pharaoh? <laughs> mention me to Pharaoh. Ask him to release me from here. Honestly, I was kidnapped from my home country, the land of the Hebrews. I was thrown in here for no crime that I committed. Verse 15, he says, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The word that Joseph uses for pit here, prison, is the same word used for the pit that he was thrown into by his brothers 13 years earlier. He's saying, it feels like I'm at the bottom of an Egyptian cistern with no prospect of getting out. I don't know why I'm being treated so unfairly, but I would appreciate your help when you get your freedom back. Wow, Joseph, I can see you're hurting here. Though you're accepting the tests of God, you're still living in considerable pain, aren't you? You're longing for freedom from the struggle, but what you don't know is that, the, that God has bigger plans for you than just going free. There's something bigger than going free. And it's not his time yet. Well, the chief baker hears the good news from the cupbearer's dream, so he shares his dream next. And this time, ooh, I, I, Joseph heard the baker's dream, and I think he winced. His face like, oh, ooh. When he hears the interpretation from God, the news is not good. In fact, the dream of the baker contains the message that in three days, Pharaoh's going to call him back and execute him. That's not an easy word to convey. What will Joseph do? Will he lie to the baker and give him false hope, or would he speak honestly and give him the bad news? You feel the weight of his insight? One man is going to live, the other man is going to die. This is God's word, not Joseph's word. So Joseph faithfully and courageously delivers the hard truth along with the hopeful truth. And I'm thinking, this is like the gospel. Because all of us live on the cutting edge of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. We are either under the sentence of death, eternal separation from God, from Christ because of our sins, or we're under the blessing of life in Christ because of our faith in him. That's a hard reality, but it's beautiful, it's true. John 3.36 tells it like it is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's great news. Whoever does not obey the Son, a synonym for believe, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is sobering, sobering bad news. In Jesus, there's life and forgiveness and eternal hope. But apart from him, there is no hope. We need the righteousness of Christ by faith. Or we're doomed. God doesn't want that to happen. That's the good news. He loves us so much that he gave us his son. Here is the life preserver. Grab onto it. You want to swim on your own? You won't make it. 
Without a change of heart, all of us will perish. So in sharing this, like Joseph, we need to be bold and sensitive at the same time. Don't put our own spin on it to keep from offending someone. We need to do this with humility and with love and with grace, but we're holding something so powerful and precious. Joseph looked at the baker and he said, man, I hate to tell you this, but you are not going to make it. Three days later, just as Joseph had said, both men were summoned back. It was a party for Pharaoh on his birthday. What a party. One man gets his job back, the other gets hanged. Joseph's interpretations are on the mark. But back in Pharaoh's service, the cupbearer, preoccupied with pleasing the king, completely forgets Joseph's request to mention his case to the king. Verse 23 of chapter 40, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh, So Joseph, number four, waits in prison. His hopes of release getting dimmer and slimmer as the days, the long, monotonous, unspectacular, slow-moving days slip into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months morph into years. You know, there's something here that I thought was significant. Why is it that God gives Joseph's two prisoners detailed information about their futures down to the day of when they're going to get out? But for Joseph, there's no dream. There's no revelation. There's no such information. God never tells him how long he has. He's totally in the dark. Why? He's totally dependent on God. That's a good thing for him. He's waiting, waiting, waiting. I think waiting on God's time is one of the hardest things to do in life, to give up our schedule-driven you know, goal-oriented, get after it. I need it now. Let's get going. This mentality, that's not easy to give that up. And God knows Joseph's heartache. He was working, but Joseph, Joseph just couldn't see the big picture. To go free now, Joseph, is to miss the palace. God has something amazing for you. So wait. Maybe you or I have been let down by somebody they haven't come through on their promise. They said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll mention. No, they forgot. The good news is God overrules people's lapses of memory as we wait on him. The challenge to me is just be content, Steve, with not knowing, not having things go your way, keeping my trust firm in the one who has perfect timing. King David, remember he was promised the throne as a teenager? maybe around 13, he waited a long time before he was king. 30 was the age he became king. You know, God was training David in this waiting time through hard things. And occasionally David was overwhelmed with the waiting. Psalm 13 kind of tells us, what was it like to wait, David? Well, listen to this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I'm on hold here, God, and it's been a long time. How long will you hide your face from me? It's like, God, you're not paying attention. But you know, at the end of the psalm, David, David says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I look forward, 
I know you still love me, and I look forward to when you're going to intervene. It's hard to wait. And God goes, I know. I know, son. How many times a parent has said to their kid, just wait, just wait. I said maybe, and that's final, you know. <laughs> no, it's not final, but sometimes parents do that. Waiting while we patiently endure hardship is a heart posture cherished by God who is the perfect trainer. He knows the times and seasons of our story. And his time will come if we're humble, if we stay humble and faithful. Paul said to the Galatian Christians, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Maybe that's the word we needed to hear today. Maybe you're in the middle of something so difficult, you're waiting on God. Maybe for a wife or for a wife to change or for a husband or for God to stir a husband's heart, awakening him. Maybe you're looking for God to give you a child or a job or some, meet some financial, emotional, relational need. Keep trusting and waiting. God will always come through with his plan. It may not be what we ask for, it may be totally something totally different. It could be exponentially better. Usually God's way is better. Always his way is better. He knows best. So let's wait on him. Earlier I told a story about our church planning days in Tokyo, and there's another backstory. We met in our home for three years with a small church family, and eventually God enabled us to buy a piece of land and put up a church building. Well, our excitement was uh, dashed a few weeks after we had bought the land when we took a guest pastor excitedly to show him the land. And when we got to the property, it was a, maybe a 20-minute walk from our house, there on the fence around this weedy, empty lot were plastered seven posters. And written in Japanese, they each said the same message, absolutely opposed to the construction of a church on this property. <laughs> We're going, oh my God, somebody doesn't want us here. And what do we do? Well, we took those posters down and we began to pray. I thought, shall I destroy them or shall I save one for, for when God intervenes? Well, we applied for a building permit eventually, several months later, and I went to the Kawasaki City Hall permit office. That's where the property was. And I found out from the, man, the head person at the permit department that there was a signed petition filed in the city, at the City Hall against the construction of a church building on this property, signed by 127 people. Really? Oh my goodness, free publicity is not what I thought. But God had a sense of humor. Well, anyway, the representative on the petition was the next door neighbor. And I was told by this gentleman that the Japanese way is before you get issued a permit, if somebody's opposed to the construction, you have to go with, sit with them and meet with them and talk with them and kind of come to terms with them. And uh, they were claiming falsely that our construction was illegal, and they were refusing to meet with us. So we were stuck. Months went by. What do we do? We're, we just realized that only God could fix the problem we were in. So as we waited on God, 
he did something amazing, something small for, from his perspective, but I went to the city office again to talk to the permit guy. It was somebody else. What happened to the old guy? Oh, he's gone. Oh. So this new guy, I could sense he's sympathetic. He said to me, I know you're doing nothing illegal, and I will talk to your neighbors and tell them they must meet with you. And he did. I go, whoa, thank you. And then as I was leaving, he quietly said to me where no one else could hear, oh, by the way, my wife is a Christian. I was going, whoa, God, you're the man. You, you sent somebody who's, whose wife is a believer, who's sympathetic, and who wanted us to succeed. So we waited on God. He eventually opened the door. We had those terribly difficult meetings with our neighbors. We came to terms. Waiting wasn't easy, but it deepened our faith in God. And when he showed up and the thing got built, ooh, that was an awesome day. Two long years went by before God was ready to release Joseph from prison and put him in the palace. But that day did come. That's chapter 41. And this is just a wonderful description of how God orchestrated events in an amazing sequence. It's a great chapter. I just encourage you to read it. But the first thing that God did for Joseph's promotion was gave Pharaoh dreams. He gave Pharaoh dreams. Verses 1 to 8. And Pharaoh had two similar and vividly strange dreams in one night that woke him up in a cold sweat. And so in the morning, he calls his experts, his advisors, and he explains what he's seen, but nobody could make sense of his dreams. I mean, how would you make sense of seven cows coming out of the Nile, feeding on the bank, and then seven more cows, thin and gaunt, instead of feeding on the bank, devouring those first seven cows and looking just as thin and gaunt as they were when they came out? It's like, what does that mean? It's beef-eating cows. It's a Chick-fil-A commercial on steroids, I'm thinking. <laughs> a second dream is similar to the first, just different props. Pharaoh's pondering what he's dreaming, and he has a sinking feeling. These scenes are somehow related to the life of his kingdom. And so he calls in the leadership team, as I said. Everybody's stumped. Nobody has any idea, and verse 8 tells us, there was none who can interpret them to Pharaoh. Regretfully, O king, we have no clue what your dreams mean. Thank you so much, that's why I pay you. Well, God is setting up the moment. This is the moment that God's been preparing his man, Joseph, for. So beautiful. With the best minds of Egypt drawing blanks, the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh starts feeling a tug at his memory. A light comes on, a face appears in his mind. Oh my word, that Hebrew slave! I met him in prison, he interpreted my dreams. Oh, oh, oh! And he leans over to the king and kind of sheepishly says, Sir, a couple years ago, I messed up. And anyway, you sent me to prison, I'm back now. But uh, thank you, <laughs> There was a man in prison that interpreted a dream of mine and, and a baker, and it turned out exactly as he had given us the interpretation. Everything he said came true, and I'm living proof of the man's wisdom, his accuracy. So Pharaoh wastes no time. Go get him! He sends the order. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly 
brought him out of the pit quickly. So Pharaoh, see, when God moves, boom, it happens quickly. And the second thing, Pharaoh summons Joseph into his presence. Prison doors burst open. Messengers of the king rush in. They state their business. He's calling for you, Joseph. Interpret dreams of his that nobody else can explain. Come quickly now. Let's get you shaved, man. Get some good clothes on you. Hurry, a chariot's waiting for you. Pharaoh's not fond of waiting. Waiting? (laughs) Joseph is ushered into the palace in a matter of minutes. Pharaoh wastes no time in telling Joseph his predicament. I've had a dream, but nobody can interpret it. I've heard it said about you. When you hear a dream, you can interpret it, verse 15. So there Joseph stands, all eyes on him. It's quiet. You could hear a pin drop. This is his moment. All the training, all the tests, all the hard time have prepared him for this moment. Look at him. He's not shuffling his feet. He's not stuttering. He's not asking for a drink of water. He's not bargaining. He stands up straight, looks Pharaoh in the face, and he says, It is not in me, sir. I cannot do this. I have no special power or wisdom, sir. What? Instantly, you could hear the air, the, you could feel the air go sucked out of the room. People start scowling. Cupbearer's face is like white as a sheet. Like, why did I tell him about this guy? But before anybody could say anything more, Joseph continues. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 16. Joseph's only concern is not to exalt himself, But the Lord, no confidence in himself, confidence in God. I cannot, but God can. God knows what no teacher, no master, no philosopher, no wise man, no counselor, no sorcerer, no human being on his or her own can know. Do you believe that? He does. God is the author and architect of life. It's his universe. He made it. It's running on his tracks according to his plan, and that includes our lives, yours and mine. Do you have any idea how awesome and smart God is? Joseph says, I can't, but he can. How strong is your confidence and mine in this amazing God? Jesus said, all power and all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Do you trust him? The secret to ministry is just being bonded, connected to Jesus, able to hear from him, then sharing with others what he can do. That's really what it is. Not solving problems around me in my own strength or wisdom, but connecting people to the living God in their problems. Have you asked Jesus about that? He can really help. Let's talk to him. It's very simple. Pharaoh repeats his dreams to Joseph and then looks expectantly, expectantly for the interpretation. And Joseph came through. God came through. He gets a word for Pharaoh from God. Because of Joseph's five-bar connection to the living God, amazingly, instantly, in Pharaoh's presence, he gets the answer and interprets, number three, the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams to him. That's verses 25 to 32. Sir, you've received in your dreams a very important message from God who's telling you what he plans to do. He's given you a 14-year 
peek into the future of your country. He's letting you know what he has determined and what he is going to do in Egypt. Your two dreams point to the same reality. Seven years of bumper crops, an inconceivable abundance throughout the whole land, followed by seven years of the worst famine your nation has ever seen. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, Joseph said, means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Pharaoh, the countdown is starting very soon. I wish I could have seen the, the faces of the people in the room when Joseph interprets the dream. You think there were any doubters? Like, what is this 30-year-old Hebrew slave we just drug out of prison know anything about the future of our country? You know, nobody's saying that. You know why? Because everybody is sensing the presence of the living God, the Spirit of God in his life. And that's all they need. But Joseph isn't done talking. After he interprets the dream, then he gives a personal recommendation, a plan for Egypt's security and survival, which, is, which involves creating a food bank in the good years to distribute food in the bad years. And suggesting that a wise man be chosen to administer the whole program. So, wise man, administer the whole program. Let's see, who do we have here? Oh, oh you. Why not him? Look, so all the advisors huddle for a minute, and then they all go, you're our man. Absolutely, Joseph. He's standing quietly, humbly putting his own future in the hands of God, not self-promoting, not self-defending, waiting. And Pharaoh goes, you're the guy. We want you. So fourthly, Joseph is promoted in that moment to the highest position in the land to manage this emergency reserve. And look at Pharaoh's words in verses 38 to 40. Pharaoh said, And can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Do you know how old Joseph is when this happens to him? He gets a chain of gold around his neck. He gets Pharaoh's signet ring put on his. He's dressed in robes. He rides in Pharaoh's chariot. Bow the knee, bow the knee. This is the new man in charge. He's 30, 30 years old. Pharaoh introduces him to the country. When God exalts a man, a person, he doesn't do it halfway. And Joseph doesn't waste any time. He gets after it. He prepares. He's ready for this moment. He's ready for this mission. He's been faithful in the small things. He's, been, he's endured the hard things. He's been tested and tried. Now he's got integrity. He's got wisdom. He's got grace. He's got humility. He is a ready instrument in the hands of God for his generation. Now, God may never put us in the White House, but he has a mission for each of us who's yielded and humbled before him. Joseph receives honor. He gets a new Egyptian name. He also, number five, gets a family. Pharaoh gives him a wife from one of the most honored priestly families in Egypt, and she bears him two sons. If you're wondering how Joseph can remain humble in the middle of such great exaltation, his sons are telling us what's going on in his heart. 
chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph holds his firstborn, gives him a Hebrew name, not an Egyptian one, Manasseh. Manasseh means made to forget, made to forget. As Joseph is holding this baby in his arms, he's thinking of all the memories of his family and all the hardship that he's gone through, and he's looking into the face of his boy, and he's sensing no bitterness. God has healed his pain. He says, Manasseh, God has made me forget all my trouble and all the trials of my father's house. There's no more sting in the owie. Humility comes from God touching our hurt, from the grace he gives us to release those who have wounded us and offer them the same forgiveness that God is offering us in Jesus. And a year or two later, he's holding number son, son number two, Ephraim. His name means fruitful. And he explains in verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Where are you fruitful? In the land of my affliction. Hey, that's what God wants us to become as well. Fruitful in the land of our affliction. He's bruising us. He's testing us for our well-being, not our demise, to produce the fruit of godliness, grace, not bitterness and revenge. Joseph is finally seeing what God had been doing in the dark times of his life. And he's passing on the insight and blessing to his sons through their names. And I'm going, what am I passing on to my family? Is my faith and my insight and the healing, is all of that being communicated to my kids and my grandkids? Let's give God permission today to teach us the tough lessons and then use us in any way as we humble ourselves under him to exalt us in his time for his glory in our world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. You're a master. You're incredible. You see the big picture of universe from time immemorial to time immemorial. You've given us a small part in your story and I thank you for your grace that saved us, that called us, and that equips us, and that trains us through the hard times. May we be ready. May we humble ourselves under your hand, not resisting, but waiting patiently as you give strength for the day in which you open the door to the opportunity for which you've been preparing us. May we be like Joseph in that sense. Thank you, Jesus, that you suffered and that you are exalted and you will be revealed in your power and glory. And those who belong to you are called to suffer with you so that they can reign with you. Thank you for that hope and that day. In Jesus' name, amen.